Our Father, uh, we welcome this time of year and this holiday, this holy day of Thanksgiving, and then our celebration of Christmas when uh, Jesus, who is God, came to the world that he created and was born of a woman who was a virgin whom he also created. Um, They found him under a star, which he created. He spoke the worlds into existence. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a commercialized time of year, but for those of us who have been called out of your grace and mercy, it is a very special time of year, as is Thanksgiving. And it's often noted that these can be difficult times because of broken relationships and But at the same time, you are the God who heals broken relationships. And uh, you love to put uh, broken and fragmented hearts back together. You love to do that in all relationships, especially family relationships. And I would pray that we might see you work in that way over these uh, holidays. Don't let us, um, don't let us be complainers, Lord. Don't let us be um, those, like those in Israel who murmured, in spite of all your grace and your provision and your comforts, They were always looking for more. What you had given was not quite enough. It's easy for us to fall into that, but check us, stop us. Help us to catch ourselves and to think clearly. And when we start thinking clearly, well, all we can say is great is thy faithfulness. What a faithful God you are. We live in a world that is uh, changing rapidly. We we live in a nation that is changing. um, uh, It's coming like a bullet train. And uh, uh, most of it uh, we don't want. It's not welcome. And in the midst of all of this change, you are the unchanging God, and our hope is in you. And we thank you that you're running this whole show. The whole thing, you're running. Every individual, you own them, you control them, you pull the strings on them. You're God. That gives us comfort, gives us solace, it gives us security, and it gives us peace in the midst of total and absolute foolishness. We thank you for your faithfulness to us and your promises to us that you will take us through whatever it is you've ordained to come into our lives. We might walk through the valley of deepest darkness, but we don't walk alone, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, of the valley of deepest darkness, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. 
And that's all we need to know that you're with us. Now tonight, as we open our Bibles, again, we're asking the Spirit of God to teach us, to instruct us. If there are obstacles in our heart, remove them. If there are blind spots, we ask you to open our eyes so that we can grow and mature. We don't want to be stubborn. We want to be teachable. Thank you for mercy and kindness and forgiveness in Christ. We never forget it. We revel in it. We can't live without it. Thank you that it is always there when we call on your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are finishing uh, our study tonight on the theme of finishing strong. Christian life, you've been here every week now, you've got this about memorized. The Christian life is a race. The metaphor is used throughout the New Testament. It's used often. Our key verse has been Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run the race with endurance, very important words, with endurance. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross and the shame. We fix our eyes on Jesus in this race we call the Christian life. Um, at some point, I told you the story of meeting the, uh, the doctor who... Uh, looked normal, and, uh, but made me quickly wonder if he was normal, because uh, when I met him, he uh, told me he was going out to California. We just moved from California, and he was all excited, and I said, what are you going out there for? And he said, the Great Western 100, and I said, what is that? A car race? And he said, no, it's a running race. I'm an ultramarathoner. I'm going to run 100 miles without stopping, and he wasn't kidding. That was his hobby. I'd never heard of an ultramarathon. That was 1986. Never heard of an ultramarathon. But he and a couple of his buddies would run ultramarathons. They'd run one every three months. That was his hobby. He looked normal. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. I have recently come across uh, a gentleman named Cliff Young. Cliff Young... um, I'm going to read something to you. Uh, It's from Australia. He is a legend in Australia for good reason. Every year, Australia hosts a 875-kilometer ultramarathon. That translates into 543 miles. That's the length of the race. It's an endurance race from Sydney to Melbourne. It is considered the most grueling of all ultramarathons. The race takes five days to complete. It's normally only attempted by world-class athletes who train specially for the event. You can imagine they train specially for a 543-mile race. Uh, These athletes are typically less than 30 years old and backed by large companies such as Nike. This writer goes into detail. I found this at EliteFeet.com. You might want to check that every morning. (laughs) 
1983, true story, a man named Cliff Young showed up at the start of this race. Cliff was 61 years old and wore overalls and galoshes. <laughs> to everyone's shock, Cliff wasn't a spectator. He picked up his race number and joined the other runners. Before he went to the finish line, he literally took out his false teeth because when he would run, they would click. The press and other athletes became curious and questioned Cliff. They said, you're crazy. There's no way you can run this race or even finish this race. To which he replied, yes, I can. You see, I grew up on a farm where we couldn't afford horses or tractors. And the whole time I was growing up, whenever the storms would roll in, I'd have to go out and round up sheep. We had 2,000 sheep on 2,000 acres. Sometimes I would have to run those sheep for two or three days it took a long time, but I would always catch them. I believe I can run this race. Well, when the race started, the pros quickly left Cliff behind. The crowds and television audience, they were entertained because Cliff didn't even run properly. He appeared not to run so much as he would shuffle. Many even feared for the old farmer's safety. All the professional athletes knew that it took about five days to finish the race. In order to compete, one had to run about 18 hours a day and sleep the remaining six hours. The thing is, Cliff Young didn't know that. When the morning of the second day came, everyone was in for another surprise. Not only was Cliff still in the race, but he had continued jogging all through the night. Eventually, Cliff was asked about his tactics for the rest of the race. To everyone's disbelief, he claimed he would run straight through to the finish without sleeping at all. And Cliff kept running. Each night, he came closer to the leading pack that had been far ahead of him. By the final night, he had surpassed all of the young world-class athletes. Indeed, he was the first competitor to cross the finish line, and he set a new course record by nine hours. When Cliff was awarded the winning prize of $10,000, he said he didn't know there was a prize <laughs> and insisted that he did not enter for the money. In fact, he felt so bad for the other five runners in the race who were still on the course, that when they arrived at the finish line, he gave each of them $2,000. That's why Cliff Young is a legend in Australia. Absolute true story. <clears throat> and you don't want to get up and change channels. <laughs> And, and I don't either. Where's my remote? I can't pull myself off the couch, you know? Can you imagine that? Uh, he became a legend. Um, and you could say this. This guy, this man, 61 years old, grew up on a sheep ranch, 2,000 sheep, 2,000 acres, didn't have the money for horses or tractors, so he would just run them down. Just run them down. Knew eventually he could catch up with them, and he did. Uh, Cliff Young, as it turns out, had a prescription 
for uh, running a 543-mile race. And it breaks down. He had a prescription that no one else had. The professional athletes, the young guys sponsored by the athletic companies, they didn't have this prescription, but he had a prescription that no one else had, and it enabled him not only to win, but to finish strong. Uh, three, three parts to his uh, prescription. First part was this. Uh, he ran in overalls and galoshes. Why? The other guys didn't do that. Yeah, but you see on a 543-mile race, you're going to hit all kinds of different weather. You're going to get rain. You're out in the country. You're going to get mud. So you wear galoshes. And he did. That's a prescription no one else had, and it worked. Secondly, um, he competed without sleeping. Now, there's a concept. That was a prescription for him, in that circumstance, to defeat those younger men and defeat them and break the record by at least nine hours. Thirdly, he had a prescription that instead of running, he would just shuffle leisurely. That was a prescription that no one else had except Cliff Young. Uh, I, I, I just found this to be fascinating because uh, we've been talking about finishing strong. And tonight we finish up this series. I, I knew what I wanted to do. But when I found this story, I, I, just, I just love how it synced. Because, you see, this guy had a three-part prescription to finish his race. And when we talk about finishing strong, I, I think there is a prescription. And it is a prescription, quite frankly, for the heart. This guy had a heart to run. There is a prescription for the man who spiritually wants to finish strong as he follows Jesus Christ. He wants to make an impact as best he can. He wants to have an influence. He wants his life to count and be productive. And as we've said before in here, uh, I was going to say, so many of us have wasted years. We all have wasted years. Years we wish we could get back. We can't. But it is still possible to finish strong. And we've made the statement and the observation time and time again that in the Christian life, because it's a long race, it's not how you start that counts, it's how you finish. Uh, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Ezra tonight. One of my all-time favorite passages is in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. And it is a description of a man who finished strong. And the reason that he finished strong and the reason that he was a man of influence and if you can find Psalms, go left. If you're in Genesis, go right. Uh, that'll kind of GPS you into. Uh, if you're in Nehemiah, go left. If you're in Kings or Chronicles, go right. Sometimes the hardest thing in the Christian life is finding the books. The context of Ezra is this. Um, to jump into Old Testament history, at a certain point, the children of Israel, um, when I say children of Israel, we usually think of them in, the, uh, in Egypt, 
uh, for 400 and some years. They came out under um, Moses, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, then they finally go in under Joshua to the promised land, and they're in the land, and hundreds of years go by. Uh, at a certain point, they had their kings, meaning with Saul, and then David, and then um, his son Solomon, and then Solomon's son um, Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was a fool. His dad was very wise, the wisest man there was, but he produced a fool, and in 72 hours, his son split the nation in two, undid what it took Solomon and his grandfather David 80 years to do. He did it in 72 hours, so now you've got the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. Uh, hundreds of years are going to go by. They have kings. None of the kings of the north of Israel, none of them follow the Lord. The first guy was a guy named Jeroboam, and he set up his own worship with golden calves, and it was downhill from there on down for hundreds of years. They went into captivity. You've ever heard of the uh, lost tribes of Israel? That's because the ten tribes of Israel were overtaken by Assyria, and nobody knows what happened to them. But then you had Jerusalem and Judah left, and eventually they went into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar came and took them into captivity for 70 years, and uh, this was called history. Uh, Daniel and his three buddies at 14, 15, 16, they went into captivity into Babylon, and they would be there for 70 years. After 70 years under Babylonian rule, God brought in Cyrus, who was king of the Medes and Persians. The Medes and Persians came in, defeated um, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, who nobody thought would ever go down, but they went down. Every great empire eventually goes down. Uh, it's the rise and fall of great nations, as Toynbee would call it. Uh, they went down, and now this is very interesting, because now we get to Ezra. Because historically what's happened, the 70 years of captivity are over, and now God brings in Cyrus, and Cyrus was a Persian. He, uh, God said to him in Isaiah 44 and 45, you're my anointed, you're my chosen king, you are the one that is going to restore my people out of Babylon, back to the land, back to Jerusalem, rebuild their cities, I'm going to give you a heart to do this. You're going to obey me, even though you don't know me. And he says twice, even though you don't know me. And uh, this is what God said to Cyrus 150 years before Cyrus was born. And it happened exactly as God said. So Cyrus comes along and says, all right, you get to go back. Now that brings us to Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah. After seven years of captivity, they're going back into the nation, and they're going to rebuild their cities and rebuild their homes. It's a big deal. It's a tremendous, it's just tremendous. So that's who Ezra was. He's got to teach the people. He's got to instruct the people. So that gives you a little bit of context on who Ezra was. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. It says this, And Ezra set his heart... Actually, it says, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Uh, I think you have a prescription there for how it is that a man can finish strong in his life. Um, 
We talked about this guy, Cliff Young. How in the world do you run a 500 and four, I can't to look down every time when I, want, I start to talk about how long this race is because I can't believe it. How in the world do you run a 543 mile race at the age of 61 and win? and beat world-class athletes. First of all, you have to have a heart for it. And he had a heart for it. Notice, notice it says, Ezra had set his heart. His heart. Christianity is a matter of the heart. That's Christianity. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the, on the heart. Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your, what? Heart. All your soul, all your strength, all your might. And these words I am commanding you shall be on your heart. Uh, speaking of David, the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. We've all had the experience of seeing a highly paid athlete um, just coasting. And you can tell he's bored and he doesn't care and he's really not motivated. He's just a spoiled brat. And you want to say, put your heart into it, man. Get some heart. Get some motivation. You're half-hearted. Uh, you see guys uh, who work half-heartedly. Uh, they're just half-hearted. They're just passive. They don't care. They're apathetic. Uh, in, in the Hebrew mind, when it would speak of the heart, the heart, the heart was every aspect of you, especially your mind. The heart equated the mind. Uh, for Ezra had set his mind to study the law. And it's not just your mind, but it's everything about you. The heart is your mind, it's your will, your emotions, it's you. Quit dogging it, put your heart into it. Put everything you have into it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. So what did Ezra do here? Ezra set his heart. Uh, the point to me there is in the Christian life, when we talk about finishing strong, and we all want to finish strong, we have to put our heart into following Christ. When we're lukewarm, I should say, he, or cold, he wants our heart. He, he wants he says, you shall seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole, what? Heart. It's the heart. So it's, it's getting, what, it, what the Christian life is, it's just simply following Christ. It's just following Christ. It, the Christian life is following Jesus. We, we have all these things, all these barriers to, that, that, that come along. They're the residue and they're the baggage of Christianity. They're hypocrites in the church or somebody wronged me or... The preacher ran off with the, uh, with the piano player or this or that. I don't believe in any of that stuff. Forget that stuff. Get your eyes on Christ. You see? And follow him. The Lord is my shepherd. Everybody has a shepherd. Everybody is following something or someone. You're a follower. I'm a follower. The question is, who or what are you following? David says, the Lord is my shepherd. And in the Christian life, when we start following Christ, we want to follow him with our whole heart, you see. It's very important. When you're half-hearted, you confuse um, 
you confuse your family as a man. When you're half-hearted about the Lord, you confuse uh, your wife. When you're half-hearted, you especially confuse your kids. Because you see, they need to see um, an impetus. They need to see a motivation. They need to see a tenacity. Um, they just need to see it. They, they, know what, they know what your priorities are by watching your heart. I told this story before, but I remember playing Little League, and, uh, you know, we'd practice Tuesday nights, and we'd play a game on Saturday. And I remember after practice, coaches, everybody gather around, and he said, hey, Saturday, uh, we're not going to play Saturday, but we're going to play Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. I knew as soon as he said it, I wasn't playing. I mean, I knew the moment, I knew the moment he said it, I wasn't going to play. And my dad wasn't against sport. My dad loved sports, very involved. I mean, we threw the ball all the time. My dad threw passes to me. My brothers, we played a game. But we, we, we played a game where my dad was the quarterback, and I had my two brothers, and one of us would go out for a pass. One of us would hike. One of us was the defensive back. And it was called interception. And we just, I mean, we just had it all worked out on the street. We did that for, we did that for hundreds and hundreds of hours. That's why we were all C students. That's all we ever did was play. Anyway, we had a great time. So we loved sports. We enjoyed sports. But when that coach said, hey, we're going to play Sunday at 11, I knew I wasn't playing because I knew my dad. And my dad had priorities in his life. Yeah, my dad enjoyed sports, but my dad followed Christ. And back in those days, see today, churches have service times. I mean, you can, only, you can find a church service about any time on a weekend you want to. I mean, you can, you can download one on your phone right now if I'm boring you. You see? I mean, you can access anybody. You know what I'm talking about. But it used to be, if you're going to church, it was Sunday morning at 11 a.m. That's how it used to be in the old days. You see? So I knew I wasn't going to play that Sunday at 11 a.m. And sure enough, my dad afterwards walked up to the coach. No big deal. He didn't, he didn't start a boycott. He didn't do anything. He just said, hey, coach, just wanted to let you know we won't be able to make it. And coach, oh, got a concerned look at us. Oh, I hope everything's okay. Oh, everything's fine. Understand, you had to change it. But uh, we'll be in church Sunday morning. I knew that before my dad said it. Wasn't even, wasn't even open for discussion. Because my dad followed the Lord, and he believed that you should not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. He was committed to the local church. You see? He was following the Lord. Okay. That was, um, see, that was my dad's heart. That was my dad's heart. When I'd wake up early as a little boy and I'd see my dad in the kitchen with his coffee and his Bible open, I knew my dad's heart. He didn't advertise that. That's just my dad's heart. Sometimes I've seen him kneeling at the sofa if I woke up early, which was rare. But if I happen to, and I can remember, I can see in my mind certain days waking up early. I remember one day I was about seven years old. It was cold, it was foggy outside. And I woke up early and I saw my dad kneeling at the sofa early in the morning, still dark outside with the Bible open. See, that was his heart. I'm thankful for that. 
But you see, if your heart is half in and half out, you're going to confuse your kids. Um, Daddy, how come you can watch that movie and I can't? Well, that's because I'm a hypocrite, son. (laughs) And when you grow up, you can be just like me. That's lousy leadership. You see? What it ought to be, if your heart's in the right place, is that you wouldn't ask your son to do anything that you wouldn't do. That's good leadership. See, in your house, you don't pass a law and exempt yourself. That's about all I'm going to say on that. (laughs) But it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes all kinds of sense. And so your response ought to be, no, you know, son, no, you're not going to watch that movie. I don't watch movies like that. See, there's the plumb line. There's the heart. I don't watch movies like that. I'm not going to allow you to watch movies like that. So you set the spiritual temperature in your home. You set that thermostat. You do. Okay, you get it. It's all about the heart. Ezra had a heart. Now here's the prescription. I think, I, I, I think this is as clear, as clear as it gets. If I want to finish strong, it's all right here in Ezra 7.10. He set his heart in three things, three parts to this prescription. Number one, he set his heart, number one, to study the law. Um, Why are you here tonight? This is called a Bible study. We're here to study the Bible. Uh, Men who are following the Christ, are following Jesus Christ, the Messiah, they want to know him, and they want to know who he is, and they want to know what he said. Um, <clears throat> turn with me to John 17, 3. Uh, when you die and go to heaven, you will not get a harp, and you will not be assigned a cloud. That is, that, that is just utter and sheer nonsense. Some guy on a cloud with a harp. Can you think of anything more boring? So that's eternity. No, that's not an eternity. What is eternity? What's heaven going to be like? Well, we have some descriptions. I mean, it doesn't go into great detail, really, because we don't have the bandwidth to conceive it or to understand it. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. It, it, it is so beyond description, but we have some descriptions. Here is the essence of eternal life. When we die and go to be with Christ, Look at this, 17.1, Jesus of John. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now watch this, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. My question is, how is it? that we know God? How is it that we find out the truth about God? The only way we find out the truth about God is that God, watch this, has revealed himself to us. He has revealed himself to us in this book. You cannot know God apart from this book. 
You can have ideas, you can have opinions, but you cannot know who God is without this book. You see? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Do you know that Jesus said there is one way to God and it's through him, period. That is not real popular, is it? But that's what he said. He said, if you want to know God, if you want to spend eternity with God, if you want your sins forgiven, there is one way. There is one path. There are not many paths. There are not many truths. There's, I, watch this. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Wow. Wow. There is one mediator between God and man, and it's not Mary. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. You say, you say well, I was raised in Catholicism. Well, you know, uh, one of the things that's so interesting to me I pastored in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. A lot of Catholic folks in the Bay Area. And what's really fascinating is when you get someone who was raised in Roman Catholicism and they start reading the Bible. It's fascinating. Because they've been taught certain things and then they start reading the Bible. They think that, that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that Jesus had no brothers and sisters. But you start reading right there in the Gospels and his brothers didn't believe him. And they weren't adopted from Uganda. <laughs> they were brothers. Uh, I, I, how do you know God? How do you know who Jesus is? By the word of God, you see. Um, uh, what, what I'm saying to you is that if you don't know, if, if you are, you're following Christ, I'm going to come back to this later. Deuteronomy 6, about three or, verse 3 or 4, somewhere in there. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might. And then it says, and these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And then it goes on and says, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons. It's kind of interesting to me because... Um, How do you know God? How, how do you get to love God? How do you get to love God? By finding out who he is. How do you find out who he is? By opening the pages of this book. I grant you it's a big book, but you've got to start somewhere. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was in Southern California doing a conference, and I flew in Orange County and got a rental car, and I'm heading up the road, and up San Diego Freeway, and I passed, um, I started passing these exits that looked real familiar. And, uh, and I passed this exit, and then this church was like two or three exits up. And the reason those exits look familiar is I lived in an apartment right off that freeway, halfway between the San Diego Freeway and the Riverside Freeway when I went to Cal State Fullerton. 
And now I'm blanking on, I, I had a part, was that, what was that, Brook? Well, anyway, it didn't matter what it was. It was right next to Euclid. Anyway, why do you, I mean, you don't care. Brookhurst. Brookhurst. Who said that? All right, Bruce, you win the car tonight. Yeah, that Hot Wheel, you're going to love that, man. Put that in your coffee and stir it. It'll be great. Uh, Brookhurst, okay? So I'm just, I mean, I'm flying in. It's been a crazy week. I'm just thinking I had to do this conference. I'm driving. All of a sudden, I have Brookhurst, and it brings back all these memories. Being in that apartment when I was 20 years old. And I'd heard a guy speak at a Christian deal in Anaheim, and he was reading out of this Bible, and I could understand, when, when he would read it, I could understand it. I, I grew up in a church, and all they ever read was King James. And it was the these and the thous and the thuses and the pluses and the mustest and the, you know. I, I just, it was hard to read. But this guy had this thing called New American Standard Bible. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, what is that Bible? He said, it's called, it's called the New American Standard Bible. He said, it's very true to the, to the Greek and the Hebrew. I didn't even know the Bible had been written in Greek and Hebrew. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. I didn't know that. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah. I said, how do you know it's true to the Greek and Hebrew? He said, I went to seminary, and I took Greek and Hebrew. I said, you took Greek and Hebrew? He said, yeah, I'll never forget him telling me that. But he said, that's why I use this. This New American Standard Version is so true to the original. So I went out and bought one. And I can remember, I can remember reading the New Testament in that apartment, just turning the pages. I could understand it. And I saw stuff in there I'd never really seen before because I'd never read it before. I believed the Bible. I revered the Bible. I just never read it. But you see, I could, I could understand it, and I had this hunger. And I just kept reading. I, I, I'd start in Matthew, and I'd read all the way to Revelation. And then I'd start again. And I just, I just kept reading it. I, just, I was kind of mesmerized by it. And see, as I'm driving up the road, I'm thinking, that was 45 years ago. In the goodness of God, you know, God did that for me. That I, that I heard that gentleman, that I had that conversation, that I found a Bible I could understand. And um, I began... I didn't know any Greek or Hebrew have any tools. I just started reading it. It's a great thing to just read your Bible. And, 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 and if you're new to the Bible, just read the Gospel of John. Just, just start in the Gospel of John. You'll meet Jesus and find out who he is and what he said about himself. And you'll, and, and you'll begin to be drawn to Jesus, you see. Just start Reading it. Get a pen and mark. If something stands out to you, just mark it out. You can mark. This is a book you can mark. It's okay to do it. You see? But, but what happens when we come to know the Lord and he begins to do a work, he'll give us a heart to study. Now listen, uh, I, I became a pastor and went to seminary. And Most guys don't become pastors. Most guys don't go to seminary. Most guys have real jobs. Most guys really... You know, they're out there, you're working, whatever you're called to do, you've got your 
vocation, you got your stuff, and that's good, and the Lord's given to you, and He's given you those gifts. We talked about this last week. So you're not going to be studying the Bible 8, 9, 10, 12 hours a day. But there ought to be, if you're going to finish strong, a segment in your life that you map out just as you will map out time in your schedule to do certain things, to work out. Uh, what happens if you're going to finish strong, you've got to set your heart to study the Word. Uh, so you're going to have to, at some point, if you're going to follow the Lord, and you're going to grow, if you want to grow and if you want to finish strong, you're going to have to set a time to get into your Bible. And so how do you even get into it? Uh, well, I mean, I, I got some stuff I could send you, or one of the pastors here, a guy in your small group, or if you don't, I mean, I got a Bible reading calendar I'll send to you, and it's the one I've been using for 25 years. You just read four chapters a day, a different chapter in each section of the Bible. It'll get you the Bible in a year. Or you can get a one-year Bible. Just read a few chapters. They got it segmented out. There's, you just get in the Bible. And all of a sudden, the Bible gets in you. You see, that's what's important. It gets in you. And it starts changing your thinking and your perspective. And you don't have to know all the Greek and Hebrew and all the history. It's a big book. There's still stuff in here I'm trying to figure out. You see. But my problem is not the stuff I can't figure out. It's the stuff I can figure out. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. So you set a time. No, what did I say first? You set a place? Well, it all goes together. You set a time. When is it good for you to open up your Bible? Some of you guys have long commutes. You can get the Bible on CD. You got all this Bluetooth stuff. I'm not sure what that means, but I, you know, you can get a chip. The dentist will put one in your molar, and it'll show up on your windshield as you're driving to work, and you can just read it. I got, my phone's in the car, but I, I got an ESV study Bible on my phone, and uh, I can be anywhere and check the ESV study Bible, and there's a little thing there that says, listen. I can put on headphones on the, on the plane, and I can listen to John chapter 6. Anything in the Bible I can listen to. That's unbelievable. You find a time, you find a place, and you just schedule a time and a place, and the Lord will be there. He'll, he'll show. That's what you do. You just start getting into it. Okay, I can't beat this drum too much. But that's a prescription. What did he do? He, he had set his heart to study the law, to study the Word of God. And here's the second part of the prescription. Not just to study it, but then it says that he had set his heart to, here's a concept, to practice it, to do it. The purpose of studying the Bible is not to get, develop this giant brain where you know all these scriptures and you know all these principles and, you know, you can argue with someone who's an atheist and do a debate with them. That's not the purpose. The purpose is that it might change you and affect you. Uh, you study the Word of God so that the Word of God can change your thinking and then change your behavior. As a man thinks in his heart, in his mind, so is he. How can a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 19, 
ask, 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? Because young men have a tough time keeping their way pure because they're young men. And they got all this testosterone. I mean, it's just seeping out of their ears and their eyes and everything. You see? You got all these juices. How can a young man keep his, his way pure? Oh, by keeping it according to thy word. Thy word I have hid in my heart, mind, that I may not sin against thee. Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you see, I've got to start interacting with the Word of God, because the Word of God is going to then affect my thinking, which will then affect my behavior the Word of God is living and active, Hebrews 4, and sharper than any two-edged sword and able to divide between uh, joint and marrow and soul and spirit and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart of the mind. Second uh, Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. I remember, time out, I remember reading that New American Standard Bible in that apartment in Fullerton on, what was it, Brookhurst, and reading 2 Timothy 3.16, and as I'm reading it, I see this, I see 2 Timothy 3.16, and I see all scriptures inspired, and next to the word inspired is a little number one, and I looked over in the margin under verse 16, and it says, number one, and it says, literally, God breathed. That's the first time I remember doing Bible study. I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious with you. First time I can really remember doing Bible study. I went, God breathed. All Scripture is inspired by God. What does, what does it mean? It literally means all Scripture is God breathed. He breathed it out. All Scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, because sometimes I need to be reproved and I need to be corrected, for training in righteousness, which is what I need in my life to be trained for righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And that's how I finish strong. But I can't do it apart from the Word of God. You guys following this? So it's not just to know the Bible. It's not to know the verses. It's so that it will change me and change my behavior and take me from immaturity to maturity. He, he can actually see there's power in the Word of God, and he can actually help guys with tempers learn to moderate and control their tempers. He can actually, the, there's such power in the Word of God that he can take men who are, who are prone to irritability, and he can develop patience. Now, I'm going to tell you something. This doesn't happen overnight. This is a slow process. It's a slow growth Know that. Don't, don't, don't expect, you know, amazing, miraculous, uh, you'll never lose your temper again. That's, that's not realistic. You see, it's a long obedience in the same direction. But we are learning to take in the Word of God. It, it's, it's, like a, it's like a baby being born and then watching that child develop through the steps. You, you, don't, you don't expect a four-year-old to act like they're 24, and even when we're 24, 
See, hopefully there's going to be a change at 44 than there was at 24. See, this is a long process of application to change. But it starts with the Word of God. And, and he set his heart to study the law and to practice it, to, to do it, to do it. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. Uh, oftentimes in the morning, I pray that and I ask God to give me patience. Because I find myself in seasons where I'm just irritable. Not at church. I would never be irritable at church. <laughs> Never, never would I do that. I got my guard up at church. I mean, I know the drill at church. I know how you act at church. But see, home's another story. It's home. I let my guard down. Now, where should I have my guard up? I think at home. That's where there needs to be a sweetness and a kindness. That's where I need to be practicing. Just, just talking to me here. I, I know men who are brilliant in the scriptures. Brilliant. Can talk all day to you about pretty much, you can mention a verse to them and they'll just take off and give you the background and the context because they've studied it for 50 years. And they're brilliant guys and they have brilliant intellectual capabilities. But they have families that are estranged from the gospel and Christ because of how they live their own lives at home. They have family members that want nothing to do with Jesus. Because there is a significant man in their life who is always spouting off this book, but that book doesn't make a hill of beans a difference in their behavior at home with their wife, with their family. And you've got wounded children and grandchildren. I've seen it many times. Many of you have seen it. I don't want to be like that. I ask God to keep me from that. I want to finish strong. And, and, and see, I know my own heart is my problem. I know my own heart. I know how screwed up I am. So I need his help. I need his word, and I need his, his help. And I ask him to help me to be patient. Help me, help me to fight off fear. Help me, to, help me to think straight here and not get depressed over these circumstances. I need you to help me, Lord. I don't know if you guys struggle. I do. It's just a Christian life. Fact is, we all struggle. But see, I'm not going to make it without the word and asking Jesus to help me apply this to my life. So that's the second part of the prescription. Let me go back to uh, Ezra. Ezra. All right, watch this. Watch. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it. Now watch this. And to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. You say, Steve, I'm not a pastor. You know, I'm an architect. You know, I sell cars. You know, I am an IT guy. No, you're still teaching. Every guy in this room is teaching. Every guy is teaching. We teach every day to our children and our grandchildren what we believe. 
And you really don't even have to say a word. Once again, they just watch you. There are two ways to teach. You can teach with your words, and you also teach with your life. What is really powerful is when those two coincide. When those, uh, when those two are congruent. That's called integrity. What a man says and what a man does, when they, when they fit, you got, then you got something. And see, when a guy teaches and knows this word and is so powerful in the world, but at home is absolutely hell to live with, then you got a problem. you got a big-time problem. This is why Ezra set his heart to know the law, to practice the law. See, I want my practice to fit what I'm teaching, and, 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 then, and, then, and then to teach it. Let's go to Deuteronomy 6. Already mentioned Deuteronomy 6, but this is to the men of Israel. I, I find it interesting, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I find it interesting. <clears throat> you, you know, Deuteronomy is such, I, I, love the, I love the title. I love the word Deuteronomy. It comes from Deuteronomos, second law. Deutero is second, nomos is law. And once again, these books have a setting and they fit, you know, the biblical history. I mentioned earlier tonight that we all know that the uh, children of Israel were slaves in Egypt and then they came out. The Lord used Moses, sent ten plagues, opened up the Red Sea, took them out. You know that story. Uh, he's going to take them to the promised land. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, but you get into, what is it, Numbers 12, Numbers 13, right in there. They went on a reconnaissance mission. They picked one man from each of the tribes. He says, pick each one, uh, one man, each one a leader among them from the 12 tribes. They go on a reconnaissance mission to check out the lands of the ites. And they come back and say, it's a great land, it's a fabulous land, but there are giants in the land. And because of the unbelief of the 10 leaders, God says, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They could have been up in that land in a matter of weeks. But now they're going to wander, and there's a plague, and the ten guys, the ten leaders who, are, um, who look like leaders but are fake leaders, who are synthetic leaders, who can talk the talk, who know all the words to all the verses of all the hymns, they don't practice it. Oh, there are giants in the land. Okay, well, God just took you through the Red Sea, bozo. And I say that in Christian love. Come on. He just took you through the Red Sea on dry land. And you think God can't deliver you from those giants that are out there? Yeah, they're there. Well, is that, is that a problem to a God who has displayed his power? And before that, the ten plagues he sent to cripple Egypt? There's darkness in Egypt, and where you guys live, there's light. And at the border, you could, there's light, and you put your arm across the border, and you can't see your hand. That's a God of power, and you're telling me he can't deliver you from these giants? See, that's a failure to practice and do and apply the Word of God, is it not? So they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and everybody over 20 dies. And in Deuteronomy, now, Deuteronomos, second law. Didn't know there was a second law. There wasn't. But what's going to happen is Moses is going to restate 
the original law to a new generation of leaders. Because when the ten spies said, we can't take them, and Joshua Caleb said, yeah, we can, God will fight for us. When that all happened, you had little boys standing around who were four and five and six and seven. Now in Deuteronomy, they're 44, 45, 46, and 47. Now they're the dads. Now they're the leaders. And so to those guys, God says, all right, let's try this again and see if we can't get it right. Okay? I'm going to restate it for a second time. And in Deuteronomy 6, he says, This is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might, watch this, do them. So the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments would comprise the word of God. I want you to know that so that you'll have giant brains full of biblical knowledge and you can win on Jeopardy. No, that's not the point. That you might do them, practice it in the land which you are going over to possess so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all the statutes and commandments which I command you all the days of your life. Watch this. That your days may be prolonged. There is favor to those who live in obedience to the word of God. There just flat out is in Deuteronomy 6. God gives favor to his people. And then he goes on. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And here's the verse we talked about earlier. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be in your heart. So watch this. When you love the Lord, see, why are you here on Wednesday night? What are you doing on a Wednesday night? Aren't you exhausted? Didn't you get up early? Didn't you go to bed late? Yeah. I mean, didn't you fight traffic to get here? I mean, what are you, I mean, come on, guys. I mean, what are you doing? Well, you love the Lord, and you love his word. And for some of you guys, this is new, and you're just starting to, this is kind of a new thing, and you find yourself being strangely drawn. And you're right. And you're not even quite sure, what, what am I doing here? Well, you know, Jesus, who is God, and who is real and alive, and who is the Savior, he's pulling you. And we got guys sitting here, and I'm looking at some of them, who walked in here and they didn't know spit about anything in the Bible. <laughs> and now these guys are pillars. So King, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell your story if it's okay. I mean, you can say no, but I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> It's, I, I love it, King, how the Lord, our friend Paul Lanier, who had Lou Gehrig's disease, and was a medical doctor and worked with King and some other doctors, and he asked, King obviously said, hey, I'll do anything I can do, just let me know. And he asked King, hey, would you, would you help me get to Bible study? King said, sure. Well, he already had five or six other guys helping him get to Bible study. Some of you guys were here. You remember Paul, and he'd come in with his entourage. What I didn't know until later is that a lot of those guys were unbelievers. But they wanted to help Paul out. 
And so Paul was tweaking them. I mean, Paul was a smart dude. And hey, so would you help me get the Bible? Said, sure. And I remember King telling me the story at Paul's memorial service. And I didn't know this. But he said, yeah, uh, well, but King, sure, I'll take you to Bible study. Well, what do you want me to do? Uh, wait outside or wait in the... Oh, no, just sit there with me and... No, you can just come in. And, and King didn't know what to do. And I, I, I believe King told me, he said, I, I really didn't have a Bible. So he went down to Barnes & Noble and he couldn't believe how many Bibles they had for sale. And I remember King, I'll never forget this. He said, I wound up buying a new American Standard Bible. That's the one I started reading when I was 20. He said, because I figured, I mean, it was so overwhelming, all these Bibles. How do I know which one? I figured, New American Standard. Well, I, I mean, I'm an American. And I love that story. And he started coming with Paul. And he started listening. And the Lord started working. It's just great. And see, some of you guys are right there right now. This is all new turf to you. That's fine. It's okay. You're good. We're glad you're here. Just keep showing up. Keep reading the book. Okay? Just ask the Lord. Say, Jesus, I don't know what I'm doing. Help me here. Help me, Lord. I don't even... I don't even know what to believe. Would you help me? Would you show me? And you know what? He will. He's for you. He's not against you, man. He, he's, he's for you. He died for you. He wants to do something great for you. More than you could ever think or imagine. I'm telling you, he wants to do for you. And then, here's what's going to happen. See? You shall love the Lord, and then you start loving God, because you get to know him in the book. You go, that's Unbelievable. I mean, Jesus was great. You know, when you start reading John, and you know what Jesus would do? He would take on these religious bureaucrats who loved the Sabbath. They loved it. They loved it. They worshipped it. They had a website. <laughs> they were bureaucrats, the Sabbath. You don't do certain things on the Sabbath. I mean, they were just freaks on the Sabbath. And start reading through John, and every time, start noting how many times Jesus would heal on purpose, on the Sabbath, in front of the Pharisees, just to tweet those suckers. There's a man with a withered hand, and the Pharisees are watching to see what he's going to do. It's the Sabbath, and Jesus said, stretch forth thy hand. By the way, Jesus is always telling people to do what they can't do. A guy who has a withered hand doesn't have the ability to stretch forth his hand. Stretch forth, you could do it. And then the Pharisees got all ticked off. And then Jesus would say, this is great. Jesus would say, hey, if you've got a donkey and he falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, aren't you going to pull him out? Yeah. They don't get on me for healing this child of God. They let the guy in, the paralytic guy. He can't get in because of the crowd. His buddies take him up on the roof. Sort of like King and the guys bringing Paul in here. They couldn't get him in. They cut a hole through the roof. That's what they did. They cut a hole through the roof, and Jesus is teaching, and all of a sudden this guy gets lowered. This guy's a paralytic. And they're all looking to see what Jesus is going to do. And Jesus says to the guy who's crippled, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. What? Your sins are forgiven? 
Only God can forgive sins. Exactly. So rise up and walk. Because only God can heal. And if I can heal, I can forgive sin. He's always tweaking these suckers. Don't you love that? I mean, don't you love Jesus? I mean, he's great. And through all eternity, we'll get to know him. We'll just get to know him and talk to him. And stuff we don't get and we can't understand, it freaks us out. You know, and he'll sit down and stuff you just can't, right now you can't, I don't understand evil and all this. And then he'll sit down and he's going to explain and you're going to go. That's unbelievable. And you're going to get it. Wow. But see, you don't get it now because now we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face. Am I boring, you guys? There's nobody like Jesus. And here's the thing. When you love him and you get to love, see, you shall love the Lord God all your heart, all your soul, all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today. How do you get to love him? By reading his word. These words which I'm commanding you today, watch this, shall be in your what? Heart? Watch this. Oh, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Obviously daughters, if you have them. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. See, you shall teach your kids. You don't have to be a pastor to teach. You're teaching anyway. But when you love the Lord and his words in your life, as you live life. See, he, he doesn't say turn your house into a seminary classroom. Just when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you're hanging out, you don't always have to be thumping a Bible. Don't do that. You're going to watch football? Watch football. Don't break out the Bible and go into Romans. <laughs> just, watch, just be normal. Just, just chill out, man. Don't try to convert them. You can't convert them. Only the Spirit of God can do it. So love them. Be there. Be with. And if something comes up and it's normal and it's natural and there's it's appropriate, then say a word. A wor- uh, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. If it's a right circumstance, speak it. Don't force it. Am I making sense here? See, that's how you teach. That's how you teach. And see, you're teaching stuff that you're attempting to apply to your own life. Okay? I had a hard time raising Rachel because I'd never been a girl. I'm dead serious. Girls were a mystery to me. I had, no bro- I, I had no sisters, just brothers. And so Rachel was born first, and John and Josh, I was pretty comfortable with because I, you know, I mean, I was a boy. And I kind of got boys and got men, and, but girls? And I remember one time, I, I, and I'd ask Rachel, for, I, I'd say, I'd talk to her, and, I, I, and I, at a certain point, I'd say, Rachel, listen, let me tell, ask you something. What, what could I do to be a better dad? And she said, oh, you know, Dad, you're fine. I, yeah, but I, don't, I want to be better than fine. I mean, give me something. Because what, you girl, you know, you're a mystery to me, Rachel. And, and I mean, the boys I get, but, I mean, you're a girl, and I love you, but you got to help me out here. Give me one thing I could do to be a better dad for you. I remember her saying, you know, Dad, I don't like it when you yell. 
See, to me, I wasn't yelling. But you see, it was to her. And it was, a, it was a big deal to her. So I started being aware of it. Because you see, I'm to live with my wife in an understanding way. You say, well, she's not your wife. No, but she'll grow up to be a wife. And I need to understand, she doesn't do well with that. So I need to apply the word of God and let my speech be seasoned with salt and speak with grace. And if the volume is too high, I need to moderate it and apply that passage to my life. Am I making any sense? And then I'm teaching her as she watches me struggle and try to get that. And then down the road, and this is what happened, different guys would come into her life and she would watch them. Let me tell you something. You know what fathers are? When, When your daughters become mature and young men want to come into their lives, She she is going to put up unconsciously um, what did I want to say? Template. Yeah, yeah, those are good synonyms. She's going to put you up as a template. And if a guy comes in and he's harsh to her, he should bounce off the example that you taught to her. Am I making sense? Because see, her dad didn't do that. That's how it should be. Now, let's get real honest here, and I'm done. I didn't mean to go this long. See, some of you guys were harsh with your words, and right now, this is really hard for you to hear. This is really tough for you. Okay. So what do you do? You say, Lord Jesus, change me. By the power. You can't do anything about those years. But change me, Lord. I, I know she's 35 or 40 or 18 or whatever she Lord, change me. And then give me an opportunity to talk with her and ask her forgiveness. And then help me, Lord. Help me to change by the power of your word. See? And trust God with it then. He loves to put families back together. Don't expect it to happen like that. But you just keep following the Lord. Knowing the Word, applying it, teaching. This gives me hope. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that not only do you get us started in the race, you help us to finish. And you clean up all of the messes we create as we run the race and before we get into the race, because Jesus is the Savior. How thankful we are for you and your word and the truth and how practical biblical Christianity is. It's to be lived in real homes and real life under pressures and stresses and sickness and unemployment and budgets not quite making it. This is where it is to be lived. Thank you that you are our Savior. We rejoice that you came into the world, Jesus. We rejoice that one day you're coming back. That gives us such hope. Our lives are in your hand. We honor you over these next holy days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.